This evening we're sailing into uncharted waters, venturing beyond the sixth chapter of Romans as we rush our way through this magnificent epistle. Having reached now chapter 7, I mentioned in some form of lament how difficult it was for me over the years to lecture on the sixth chapter of Romans, and so I'm deeply grateful that we're on the other side of that, but we have just now jumped out of the fire and into the frying pan because Romans 7 is one of the more controversial of all of the chapters of this book. This evening I'm going to begin chapter 7 at verse 1 and read through verse 6. If possible, we'll go on beyond that, but I usually am not able to make it. Romans 7, 1 through 6, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, we beseech you for your help that you may condescend to our weakness in dealing with these weighty matters of understanding your grace and our walk in Christ. Grant us that understanding tonight that we may hear the truth of your word and ever be changed by it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I look here at the beginning of chapter 7, let me remind you, as I have on many occasions, that when Paul wrote this epistle, he didn't divide it into chapters or into verses. And the advantage to having chapter divisions and verse divisions is for our study and our uh, ability to find things uh, 
with some facility as we're looking for the Scriptures, through the Scriptures. The disadvantage to these uh, divisions are we have a tendency to look at each chapter as a self-standing unit and forget its interconnectedness to what has gone before and what comes after. And there is no great break in subject matter between the end of chapter 6 here in the text and the beginning of chapter 7. And also remember that everything that we looked at in chapter 6 was still part of the full extension of Paul's teaching of the gospel and its consequences. He announced in the first chapter that the gospel of God was to be seen in the doctrine of justification, the revelation of that righteousness which is by faith. Then he took us to the law early on by which we were seen to be sinners in every way, in desperate need of the gospel. And then after defining the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in chapter 5, he began to set forth for us the consequences of our having been justified, having peace with God, access to His presence, and so on. And then you recall in chapter 6, he asks the rhetorical questions. Then if we have been saved by grace, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And at that point, he began to introduce us to the dimension in which our sanctification must of necessity flow out of our justification. And we remember that he ended chapter 6 by saying, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in this chapter, he talked about that spiritual reality in which we have been crucified with Christ, that we participated in His death. And now Paul continues the application of that monumental concept of our having been crucified with Christ. When in chapter 7 he says, Do you not know, brethren, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. And he has this extended analogy here about marriage. It's very simple. You get married, you take your vows, and in most uh, liturgies of marriage, when the promises are made, we promise to uh, honor each other and cherish each other. How long? As long as we both shall live. Because we understand if one of the partners in that marriage covenant should die, that all of the obligations for the remaining person that were sworn to in the vows of that marriage are now set aside, and the widow or the widower is completely free in the eyes of God to be married again to another person. So that the law that binds us and regulates our marriages is in effect in our lives only as long as our partner remains alive. That's pretty simple, isn't it? We don't have to labor that to any degree. The difficulty here is the point of the analogy that Paul makes here. 
where we read in uh, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. Now, notice the little shift here. It's not that your spouse has died, but you have died. And notice that Paul does not say that the law has died, but you're the one who has died, and since you have died, your marriage to the law is over, so that the law will no longer have dominion over you the way it had before you died. Well, again, you died in Christ, and in Christ the law was fulfilled. Now, let me back up here and do a little uh, background check for you on a couple of things. First of all, when Paul is talking about the law here, we could ask the question, is he talking about the ceremonial law? Is he talking about the law of Moses given at Sinai? Or is he talking about law in an even wider and broader sense? I'm persuaded that he's talking about the whole of the moral law of God, not just that which was given by Moses, not just that which is found in the ceremonies of the Old Testament, but he goes back to creation. Remember, he's already labored the point in chapter 5 that death reigned from Adam to Moses, proving what? That apart from the law, there is no sin, and apart from sin, there is no death. Now, since death entered into the world with Adam and Eve, and people after Adam and Eve all died before the law of Moses was ever given, that means that sin was in the world before the law of Moses, and the only way sin could be in the world before the law of Moses is that there was another law that preceded the law of Moses, namely the moral law of God that He reveals in nature and in our consciences. So that from the very beginning, the law of God has had dominion over us. From the very beginning of the fall, the consequences of the law of God have issued in our death. Since the fall, the law of God has exposed us to the judgment and condemnation of the holiness of God. Since the fall, we have been under the relentless burden of the law that weighs us down exposed moment by moment to the full curse of that law. But now it's not that the law has been removed and that the law is dead, but in Christ we have died, and He has taken the full weight of the curse of the law upon Himself so that we are no longer with that burden on our backs. Now, I mentioned before, and I just want to repeat for you, by going back to the situation of Adam and Eve, 
of the original covenant that God makes with man. Sometimes it's called the creation covenant in the situation in which Adam and Eve found themselves on probation. They were made good. They were made in the image of God, but God set before them a test and told them that they were not to eat of the fruit of the tree, and if they did, the day that they ate thereof, they would die. But if they passed the test, if they were obedient, then for them was offered the tree of life. And you know how things fell apart. Now, the way in which Reformed theology, I remind you, looks at that original relationship that all human beings had to God, we call the covenant of works. Now, of course, the very fact that God would enter into any kind of a covenant, any kind of promissory agreement with creatures that He makes freely, that He would choose to enter into any promise with them is pure grace. We know that. But the gracious covenant that He enters into with Adam and Eve is called a covenant of works because the terms or the conditions for blessedness are related to obedience. And we saw just a little bit earlier the stark contrast between Adam and the calamitous response to the whole race because of his disobedience. Through one man's disobedience, death came into the world. And the contrast is between the original Adam and now the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, who like the first Adam, was put to the test subjected to a probation. He was exposed to the complete unfectung, the unbridled assault of Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. And yet, he resisted to the end, saying that his meat and his drink was to do the will of the Father, and that he lived by every word that proceeded forth from the mouth of God. But his perfection was not endured simply for 40 days in the wilderness, but from the day He was born until the moment He expired on the cross. At no time in that interim did Christ violate the law of God. His perfect act of obedience, as I've labored to you until you're sick of hearing it, is as much the grounds of our salvation as His punishment on the cross is as He satisfied the wrath of God for our guilt. He died for our sin. He lived for our righteousness. Now, keep in mind that as the new Adam, Jesus and Jesus alone kept the covenant of works. He did what no one, no other human being was ever able to accomplish. He remained absolutely faithful and obedient to every law of God from the beginning. Now, the covenant of grace refers to the promise of God immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve when He did not annihilate the human race, where He promised 
redemption that would come through the seed of the woman. And the promise of that covenant of grace is that you will be redeemed not because you will keep the law, because you can't keep the law, but you will be redeemed through the ministry of the one who does keep the law. Remember I confused you a few chapters back when I said in the final analysis, as much as we talk about justification by faith alone, I said to you that's really just shorthand for justification by Christ alone because actually and finally our justification is through works alone. The only way anyone can be justified in the sight of God is through real righteousness. And real righteousness is only achieved through real obedience to the law of God. But I reminded you when I said that we're justified by works alone, that we are justified through the works of Jesus alone, who alone kept the terms of the covenant of works. Now, I've mentioned more than once that we have a crisis in the church today because people have been raising their voices around this land, attacking the whole idea of imputation of sin to Christ, that now the atonement and its satisfaction is under attack, and likewise attacking the idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us which is under attack. The new view is that God just receives people into His household by His wonderful love and mercy. His justice needs no satisfaction. His law needs no fulfillment. There is no covenant of works. So we might as well tear these chapters of Romans out of our Bibles and throw them in the garbage can if these people are right. I don't know how anybody can read three or four chapters at the beginning of Romans and not see that what is at stake here is the penalty that we're exposed to for sin, for breaking the law, and the only way that can be redressed is through obeying the law. Now, you can try to do it yourself, and you have no hope of success. But here, our Lord has accomplished it. And when He died, He took upon Himself our punishment for failing to keep the covenant of works. And since He died for us as our substitute in a vicarious manner, so also the apostle sees that in a very real sense, we died with Him. And because we died with Him, We died to the law as a way of salvation. We never look again to obeying the law ourselves in order to receive the blessing of God. Now, be very, very careful. As Paul will say later, that this doesn't mean that this gives us a license to sin, that since we're freed from the dominion of the law, freed from the curse of the law, we're not underneath the burden of the law. That doesn't mean that the law is a bad thing, or we're supposed to despise the law. And so at this point, before we go further, let me do another reconnaissance uh, to recap some ideas that I've set before you, not only on Sunday night, but often on Sunday morning, as recently 
as this morning when I explained again why it is that in the liturgy of our worship service we regularly read a portion of the law. I know that's, that's puzzling to some people. They say, well, I thought we were done with the law. I mean, we're not under the law anymore. Why do we come to church and you hit us in the face with the, the, the Decalogue, with the Ten Commandments, week after week after week after week? One of the great differences and disagreements between the two magisterial reformers of the 16th century, Martin Luther and John Calvin, was over their understanding of the use of the law in the life of the Christian. Luther stressed what he called the elenctical use of the law, the usus elenticus. Now, what does that mean? In fancy language, that simply means the teaching or pedagogical purpose of the law. What Luther was about there was that the main function of the law is to serve, as Paul calls us, to be the schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. Because the law exposes our sin. And not only does it expose our sin, but it exposes our sinful condition and strips away all pretense to our moral ability to reach heaven by our works. Now, let me just pause about that for just a second. Everybody in this room is a sinner. And if you've been awakened by the Holy Ghost and have been convicted of your sin to such a degree that the law acted as a schoolmaster for you, taught you your sinfulness, directed you to a Savior, and you've been now redeemed and justified because you're putting your hope in His righteousness and not your own. Granted that that has happened to the vast majority of you, I would hope to all of you, if you have experienced what the Bible describes as the conviction of sin where you've been made aware that you are a sinner. Let me say to you that we haven't begun. We haven't begun to feel the weight of that conviction. We haven't begun to understand how far short we have fallen of the glory of God. We're at ease in Zion. We live in the most narcissistic age in Christian history, where the chief virtue of religion is to guarantee your self-esteem, to make sure that you are not brought low by a sinister and neurotic sense of guilt. We haven't touched the guilt that we experience. 
psychological theologian by the name of Erickson once exercised the practice of psychoanalysis of Martin Luther 500 years after Luther. And he came to the conclusion that Martin Luther was at least seriously neurotic and probably psychotic. Christopher Stendhal from Harvard gave a, an address at the American Psychologist Convention in which he talked about this distorted, neurotic, psychological introspection of Martin Luther that interpreted the gospel in such a way as to give relief to his troubled state of mind, and the church has been suffering from that distortion ever since. Why did they think that way about Luther? Well, because of the record of his behavior. Here he was in law school. His father, who owned mines there in Germany, was very pleased to send his son to the best schools, and he wanted to be able to boast, saying, my son, the attorney. Attorneys did not have the reputation in Germany at that time that they have in our culture today, where sharks will not eat them in the water out of professional courtesy. But Luther went to the university and distinguished himself and was considered by many to be the most brilliant young student of jurisprudence in all of Germany. And he comes home on a break in 1505, and on the way home, he encounters a severe lightning and thunderstorm, and a lightning bolt strikes right by him. He falls to the ground, and in utter terror, cries out, help me, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. And to his father, unvarnished chagrin, Luther compulsively entered into the monastery in Erfurt and sought to become a monk of the Augustinian order. And by his own testimony later, if anybody ever tried to get through heaven through monkery, it was Martin Luther. He was zealous for godliness, totally committed to the disciplines of the Augustinian order. He awoke early in the morning for many hours of prayer. He buffeted his body, involved in self-flagellation to punish himself for his sins. He studied the Scriptures in great depth. And he went to daily confession where he would drive his father confessor to apoplexy because the other monks would come in, say, Father, I've sinned. How long has it been since your last confession? Twenty-four hours. What did you do? Last night after lights out, I stayed up with a candle to read an extra chapter of Romans. Or yesterday afternoon, I coveted Brother Philip's lamb chop on his plate. I mean, how much trouble can you get in in a monastery? So five minutes of confession, the priestly absolution would come, say a few Hail Marys, a couple of our fathers, and be on your way. Not Luther. 
Luther would come into the confessional, spend an hour, two hours, sometimes three hours, confessing his sins from the last 24 hours. He would get absolution. He would feel peace flood his soul. He would walk back to the cell, and on the way back to the cell, he would think of another sin that he'd committed and failed to confess and would be in misery once again. That all I can see is Christ, the angry judge, hangs over my head the law of Moses. You ask me if I love God, said Luther, sometimes I hate Him. His father confessor would come to him and say, Brother Martin, you're taking yourself too seriously. Don't come to me for an hour and a half, two hours with these peccadilloes. Man, if you're going to confess a sin, give me a real sin. That's why Erickson looked at the life of Luther and said, this man was nuts. Maybe he was. You know, they say there's a thin line between genius and insanity. It may have been that Luther was skating back and forth across that line through his whole life. I wouldn't be surprised about that because it would take a madman to stand against the whole world the way he did at the Diet of Worms. But I don't think that you can understand Luther's misery simply in terms of a defective psychology. I think we'd have to look deeper. What else you can say about Luther? His training in the law, he transferred to the law of God. This morning we read of the great commandment. As you recall, I asked the question after we read of the great commandment, I said, what's the great transgression? What is the worst sin that a person could commit? And I said to you, the logic is simple. If the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and strength and soul and your neighbor as yourself, it would seem to me that that's the number one commandment from God, that the worst thing we could ever do would be to break that one. But have you ever lost sleep because you failed to keep the great commandment? I know you haven't. You see, Luther would look at himself at night and he'd say in his prayers, God, I didn't love you with my whole heart today for five minutes. I've never committed my entire mind in the discipline of mastering your word. How can I get relief from your judgment? Because I haven't loved you the way you've called me to love. You see, where that doesn't bother us, it was killing Luther. Because if ever a man tried to find his way to heaven through obeying the law, it was Martin Luther. And if he was crazy, 
I thank God that he gave us a crazy man to open our eyes to the gospel. The craziest thing you could ever do is to try to work your way into heaven. We are not able by the works of the flesh, the apostle Paul has already told us, shall, by the works of the law, shall no flesh be justified. But we still try to do it. That's the ladder that we try to climb. The ladder of our own righteousness so that we can come to God at the last day with something in our hand other than the cross. Nobody understood this better than Augustus Top Lady, Rock of Ages. Cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee to dress, right? Foul I to the fountain fly. Hide me, wash me, Savior, where I die. Preachers today don't preach sin. I don't preach sin that heavy, do I? Do you feel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that you get this relentless barrage of your guilt and of your sinfulness? I don't think so. Maybe I haven't served you well. Because the reality is, we don't feel it. We don't feel the weight of it. But when we do feel the weight of it, we know how to get rid of it. We know where we can deposit it. And when Satan comes with his accusations and hits me again with the law, the liar tells me the truth in a distorted way. You're helpless, Sproul. Look at the law. Look at your life. What do you see? I see my helplessness. And I see the cross. I see the gospel, the thing Satan hates worse than anything in the world. And this is what Paul is unpacking for us here. In the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. It's not that your spouse has died, but you have died. And what claim does any law have on a dead man? The dead man's not capable of obedience or disobedience. The will has ceased functioning. When you're dead, there's no more sin. Dead people don't sin. The law does not reign over corpses. And in Jesus Christ, you're a corpse. You're dead. So the law can't touch you with the scourge of its curse. Well, again, I mentioned that Luther saw that the main and only basic function of the law was to lead us to Christ. Calvin had 
what has now become famously known as His threefold function of the law. And let's review that briefly again. The first function of the law is to reveal the character of God. You know, that's what we have to understand. First of all, whose law it is. The moral law is not simply a list of abstract duties, a list of do's and don'ts. But the law, first of all, reveals the lawgiver. In the final analysis, it's not laws that are rooted and grounded in the nature of things, but the law is rooted and grounded in the character of God. It flows from the very being of God. And I remind you that as the author of human life, as the creator of your soul, He has every right to impose whatever obligations He wants to upon you. God has the right to say, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. And who are you? Who am I to defy the Lord God omnipotent and say, you don't have any right to tell me what to do and what not to do. I'm a woman, I have an inalienable right over my own body. Oh, no, you don't. The God who made your body rules your body, and He tells you what you may do with your body and what you may not do with your body. So the law in the first use since it comes from the character of God, expresses the character of God. It reveals His holiness. That's why we distance ourselves from it. That's why we are not zealous to pursue a deeper knowledge of the law, because when we get involved with the study of the knowledge of God, we're drawn irresistibly close to that ultimate standard of righteousness found in God's own character. And so, with that revelation of His character, at the same instant that the law reveals the holiness of God, it reveals to us our unholiness. The law is a mirror. I love that image. When I joined Weight Watchers 20 years ago and successfully completed it, became a lifetime member. It took me five years to put back the weight that I had taken off on Weight Watchers. <clears throat> and so, we're at a Weight Watchers meeting, and the instructor made us go around the room and say, what made you turn yourself in? What made you finally come and join this group and decide to really get serious about losing weight. And when she came and called on me, I said it was when I found out that when I walked past store windows on the street, I couldn't stand to look in the window because not only would I see the merchandise displayed in the window, but I would see the image of my rotund middle there. And then one day, 
I was shopping in a golf shop, and the proprietor came up to me and said, uh, there's a telephone call for you from your wife. And so I took the call and talked to her and hung up, and then I said to the proprietor, how did you know that I was her wife, her husband? She said that, well, she was calling for this short, fat guy. I didn't like the mirror. I didn't like what it showed me about my shape, although round is a shape. <laughs> we have other blemishes that are revealed to us by honest mirrors. But they don't make mirrors out there for your soul. That mirror is found in the law of God. And when I look in that mirror, that mirror never lies. And that mirror drives me to my knees because the law of God reveals my pollution. And so, as Calvin said, once the law reveals to us our corruption, then it serves, as Luther said, as the pedagogue, pedagogue that teaches us of the gospel and drives us to Christ. But there are two other uses of the law. On the other hand, the law serves as a restraint upon our sin. We live in a lawless culture, and yet some sociologists are saying we're an overgoverned culture. Every year, Congress adds hundreds and hundreds of new laws, new ways to make us guilty before the state, new ways in which we can get in trouble. And we have to have law enforcement to keep a civil society, because every day people round and about are violating the law and violating people. And yet, can you imagine what society would be like if you didn't have any laws? You have laws that post the speed limit out there, 65 miles an hour, we go 75, we go 80. Take down the speed limits and it's 90, 95. There is some restraint. That's why bad government is worse than no government. The worst of all possible societies are societies that are marked by anarchy. Because law, as much as we hate it, still exercises some restraints upon us. As sinful as we are, we would be even more sinful if the restraints were removed. And finally, the third use of the law, what is called in the Latin, the tertius usus of the law in Calvin, which was one of the most important insights of the Swiss theologian. And that is, even though we're freed from the law, its burden, its destruction, yet the law continues to reveal to us 
what is pleasing to God. A couple of years ago, I recounted the experience I had a long time ago when I was invited to Rye, New York, to a huge Presbyterian church there made up of very well-to-do people to give a series of lectures on the holiness of God. And I gave the first lecture, and afterwards the committee that was sponsoring this group asked me to go back to one of the homes for dessert and for prayer. And I said, sure. So about 20 of us went back to this mansion of great grandeur where you have a birdbath in your front yard. This lady had a Henry Moore sculpture out in the middle of the yard that the birds were swimming in. It was incredible. And we went in this house. The people turned out the lights, got on the floor, got on their knees. They started to pray. And to my utter shock, they began to pray to their departed relatives. And I said, whoa, 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 time out. What is this? I was in the middle of a seance. I said, what are you doing? We're channeling. (laughs) We're communicating with our departed relatives. I said, do you know what the Word of God says about that? That God has made this activity in the Old Covenant a capital offense. He considers it an abomination, and not only would He punish the practitioners of it, but if the nation tolerated it, He would curse the whole country. Yeah, we know that, but that's the Old Testament. But now the Spirit has led us now that we're free from the law, that we are free to participate in this. I said, wait, what is it in the history of redemption that has changed an activity that is utterly repugnant to God in one economy, now all of a sudden pleasing to Him? You see, the law in its continual revelatory value, made it very clear to me that that was something no Christian should ever, ever be involved with. And so there the law served as a guide for me as it serves as a guide for you. We're not under its curse. We're not under its weight. But the beauty of the law is still available to us as Paul begins to deal with in verse 7. We have been dead to the law through Christ. We've been married to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For even when we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. When we were under the law, the only fruit that we ever set forth or brought forth, was the fruit of death. But now we've been delivered from that law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness 
of the letter. So what? So what? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Again, the rhetorical question that we'll look at next week. Is the law sin? The law was so destructive to us. This law put us in bondage, led to death. So is is it the law's fault? Is the law a bad thing? Well, God willing, that's what we'll look at the next time we're together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You have not made us feel the full weight of our sin, for we would truly be crushed by it. You've been tender and gentle in correcting us and in convicting us. And we look forward to the day when the full measure is rolled away in heaven.